0: Welcome to my faculty podcast at Walden University created to provide further professional development and conversations relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of Research and Doctoral Services. With me today are Leilani Gelstadt and Nina McCune. Can I have both of you introduce yourselves again, Leilani? Hello, I'm Leilani Jelsted,
1: and I have been in the role of chair of the Ethics Review Board or Institutional Review Board at Walden University for about 16 years.
2: And Nina? I'm Nina McCune. I am the Associate Dean of Inclusive Teaching and Learning. I have been at Walden not even three months. (laughs) Um, And in my role, I think about um, strategy uh, for inclusive teaching and learning at Walden. Well, thank you both for
0: joining us. Um, Today we wanted to continue our discussion from last time and take a look at some diversity issues and racially specific issues that come up for researchers. So I'd like to start the discussion with thinking about how can we support students as faculty who struggle with recruiting diverse populations? How can we help them? Well, there are a couple different types of challenges that seem to come up based on the
1: students that I talk to when, you know, once they've already begun, begun their data collection. And um, so one of those challenges is when they are not necessarily focusing on one demographic or another, but they might be noticing as let's say they're halfway through data collection, they might be noticing some sort of disproportionate response rate amongst either a certain gender or a certain age group or certain socioeconomic class. And they are thinking to themselves, "Hmm, I didn't mean to, but it looks like I might be ending up with biased data so far and how can I round out my sample so that I can feel a bit more confident in the results and how these results could be interpreted or generalized to a larger population. And in some cases, it's really a a sort of a logistic challenge for a student to sit down with their full committee and maybe someone from the IRB, possibly some other stakeholders in the community to ask, hey, could you take a look at my invitation? and?" Give me some ideas or give me a little feedback, please, on uh, does this seem to be biasing in some way? Or let me you know, share the way the student can share, okay, this is how I've been recruiting. And oftentimes, in my experience in talking to students, I'm sometimes, as a you know, third party who's not as close to it, sometimes I can make an observation such as, well, are you only posting online? Because if you're only posting online, then you might be missing out on some demographics that tend to not be using online, let's um, say social media every day. Uh, and maybe that's why you're ending up with this wide, <laughs> maybe you've got an over-representation of 20 something to use Instagram or something like that. And so oftentimes it's really helpful to get a fresh perspective, a fresh set of eyes on your recruitment procedures and your recruitment materials to try to address that those groups that the researcher and the committee might feel are are just not responding to the flyer or to the invitation. And um, I don't know, would you add anything to that Nina?
2: I would. I think inadvertently what you just described is sometimes there is a possibility a student can inadvertently develop a sequestrated research space. And what I mean by that Mm -hmm. um is they've developed kind of their own little box right that they they have developed where they're going to get their pool from and they're only drawing from that pool um and it it really limits then the the true diversity of the whole pool that they can draw from now i understand that um if you want to study preschool teachers you're going to look at Preschools. (laughs) Preschools. <laughs> um, but if you, for example, want to focus your research on, uh, I don't know, um, Asian American males and who, who work in, in certain types of schools, um, you may inadvertently uh, look to areas where you assume that there are high concentration of Asian American communities, um, and thereby create this sequestrated space that uh, that just yeah it, it creates its own set of biases within the data that don't necessarily give you the picture that you want. I think then to support students who who may be doing this um, is to reexamine. And this is going to sound painful, but reexamine even the theoretical framework. Um, you know, what was the positioning of the research questions in the first place? Are the populations um, that you're considering are they the, are, are they truly that limited? Um, are there other areas where you could look, or would you, would you benefit from um, researching the exact opposite group to balance out the perspective so that you can have uh, a little less skew uh, in the biases that you're collecting, let me take a a
0: different approach to it. If, as a faculty member, my student is collecting data and she realizes that she's got primarily Caucasian older adults, which seems to be older women are usually who seem to respond to things. Is that a negative as a researcher? Do you feel like if they recruited, you know, as well as they thought that it made sense to recruit and they got this kind of biased sample, are they as a researcher really responsible for trying to get a different racial group or age group or whatever to participate? I guess I'm asking who's a responsible person and if they are responsible.
1: I would think that, first of all, it would take a certain level of awareness to even notice this pattern because unfortunately I think some people are having this happen and they maybe don't notice. So I I would view it as, when we're talking about doctoral student research, I would view it as the role of the committee. If the student doesn't notice themselves, I would hope that the committee would take a look at the demographics of the sample and just, have a conversation with the student about it and I, I don't think it necessarily means the study is useless if you if you try your best and maybe even after reflection and what we we're just talking about you know revisiting the logistics of your recruitment maybe you still end up with a, a what we might call a non-representative sample then it might be a conversation with the committee uh, amongst the committee members and with the student and perhaps even a couple of stakeholders to reframe how, how the study is, I guess, bounded, or how it's, uh, like like Nina mentioned, theoretical framework, because it might be the researcher's decision that perhaps they're in a situation where they can best serve the community or the stakeholders by working with that data that's available and then identifying as you know future steps or future directions for research that there's a real need to do this study with, some other groups that weren't available to this to the present researcher and so i think it could be dealt with in that way it also i think it's it is very tricky when it's a quantitative study honestly because quantitative studies to be robust they they need to have um, a sample that can be generalizable to the the full population. And so I think it's a little, just speaking for my own, where I sit, it might be a little bit more of a problem in a quantitative study where you can't just adjust the bounds and adjust the, the framing of the study as easily. And, but you would still acknowledge the limitations. And then I think um, it it would always be the researcher's responsibility. And it, you know, for a doctoral student, researcher along with their committee, um, they would be responsible for looking essentially checking for any demographic skewing uh, in the, in the sample especially on the dependent variable of interest but perhaps also with covariates and just to see if um there have been a few situations that i research researched teams that where i was a, a member um a part of and maybe initially they were planning to include certain demographics either as covariates or even as independent variables. And then with the sample they just happened to get, in some cases after years of data collection that was very costly, um, and it maybe wasn't an option to just go back out and collect more data. They ended up saying, you know what, you know, either these certain variables are so intercorrelated it wouldn't make sense to use them both as covariates. Typically, like for example, income and education often those are intercorrelated, though not always. And having to make database or empirically based decisions about which variables are included in the analyses. And that's a little different from your a priori hypothesis development, which you know assumes that you're um, they're gonna walk in with all of the analyses completely planned before you see the data. And so I think in some cases it can be justified, but then that researcher or that research team has to cite the justifications for why they're adjusting um, the variables they're including connect it to the existing literature. In some cases, um, we're seeing the, the literature gets updated. It, if a, sometimes when data collection takes several years, like in the example i'm'm I'm thinking of, um, the research literally gets updated in that time frame, and you learn about new uh, new variables that are are relevant. And so, um, it's. Just, I think it's just a matter of tying it to the literature and justifying those decisions mindfully, which requires um, consultation, discussion, and thoughtful decision making. That's you know documented amongst the research team.
2: I think what you just pointed to is so so important. Um, the the whole idea of you know having documents to go back to to pull from. Um, in qualitative research, there is the practice of keeping kind of a, a journal, right? Um, that, uh, and this this can go into a different direction of talking about reflexivity, right? That you reflect on uh, what your research day was like and what your interview partner was like, what have you. Um, and you keep kind of a diary of of your research. And I think there's a strong argument to be made to do that in quantitative research as well. Um, It might not have the same set of of variables that you write about Um, But I think as long as you can document a a diary of what you do as the researcher during your research project so you can have a Document a body to go back to to look and see kind of the trajectory of how did this turn out this way? (laughs) Um, It's an incredibly valuable practice to have
0: So it seems like you're both really pointing out the fact that both the student researcher and the committee really need to be aware of these issues and paying attention to it. Otherwise, you'll miss a lot of valuable information.
1: I I agree. I think that you you capture that very well, and it's honestly – it's typically – I would, I've observed one person on the committee who maybe is sitting down with a student and looking at the data, and this comes before, in a quantitative study, before you even do your inferential analyses, or in a qualitative study, before you even start looking at the, um, you know, the themes or the raw data, you might look at just the descriptive data on your sample, that's really important, and thinking, looking carefully, because that's, Sometimes when we read articles, I think maybe we gloss over that little paragraph where the sample is described, but that's a really important place to spend some time and to engage in some dialogue. And um, I, I would argue we could all be more mindful about that part of our research write ups and thinking about whose perspectives are we including here and whose perspectives have we inadvertently excluded, maybe just by virtue of the time frame of the study or where it was conducted geographically or whether it was conducted online or by door to door and you know what I mean? There there's a lot
0: that we should be thinking about in terms of whose voice is being included in research. It's a great point. I don't think a lot of faculty and students really think about that. I mean they're just so desperate to get enough participants usually that they right. <laughs> hit to their be sample size. Yeah. But I, I think it's important to look at that and to think about what it means. That, you know if you have recruited a very biased sample you know your conclusions are going to be affected by that and you need to think about it so we've been talking about you know when you want a diverse sample but what happens if you really as a researcher or your student wants to look at a specific group I mean whether it is maybe just African American women or homosexual men. I mean, when they want to look at a specific group, how is that different? I mean, what are we looking for within that data? And what are our concerns?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, there's a real importance of justifying why just that group Um, and that, That's really on the researcher to show that there is, in fact, a gap in the literature or there's a flaw in like a a serious flaw in existing studies. Um, I think we we can all fairly well agree that um, we live at a time when you know we have access to amazing amounts of research. And in those research studies, which require a lot of time to call through, um, and you know the skills to call through them. You know I think we 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 can see that there is an awful lot of study on individual identity groups, um, and that is to say, it's really incumbent I think on the researcher to take the time and read through the research that exists to understand justification for selecting a certain population. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's, there are some ethical issues that one would have, um, in terms of contextualizing that identity group, just in that, like I said, justifying why just that one identity group, um, but I can't overemphasize enough, the absolute need to carefully look through the literature, um, not only to learn how those justifications have been done in the past, but what the findings have been on particular groups and how those groups are defined. Um, you know, if you look historically, for example, in educational research on uh literature that relates to sexuality or homosexuality, um, that language is gonna be very different in the 1960s than it is in the 1980s, than it is in the 2020s. Um, And, you know, that's all bound up with anything from legislation to popular opinion um, to uh, epidemics, Um, for example, the AIDS epidemic uh, in the 1980s really influenced public opinion, but it was it it was crystallized, of course, then, you know, around Uh, different attempts at legislation or different different parts of public discourse. And so I I think it's not only looking at the body of research that's already been done, but carefully understand how those groups have been contextualized, defined, and leveraged within those studies. Yes, the literature is going to be uh, even Albert review is always important,
1: <laughs> but it's even more important when a, a student researcher or any researcher wants to focus on a particular demographic. We touched on this a little bit in the last podcast that we did with you, but just to the highlight, a, a researcher can provide either theoretical or empirical support for why, or both, for why they want to focus on one group and the challenge they will encounter, at least out, in our university is at some point if you're going to focus on one group at some point the student would be asked to justify for the irb or for the committee why are you exactly are you focusing on this group to the exclusion of others because it it might not always be perceived by a, a passionate student who's you know really wanting to in their eyes address an underserved population but when you focus on a underserved population it, almost, it can sometimes result in you then playing a role in others being underserved if you're going to focus just on the one group. And it's a, such a balancing act. And it really requires that the researchers and, and the research team, including a committee, if it's a student, um, that they all are, are pretty well aware of what's, what's been done in the field. There are certain Fields. I think education, we brought up as an example a couple of times, that there's quite a precedent in education for looking at particular identity groups, like to say, urban African American boys, you know, because there's been a lot of attention drawn to the achievement gap um, with that group compared to girls or compared to, uh, you know, other races. And in other fields, outside of education it might it is maybe the precedent isn't as strong and I don't think we always um, it's not always the case that there's there's no set of rules or like there's no <laughs> it's not as it can it can't be assumed that any one group is underserved or um, understudied I think we, we had an example come up not too long ago where a researcher was a student researcher was making the case that they wanted to focus a study on white males white boys um is the study of kids and to the exclusion of girls and to also exclude boys of other races and i think in my role with the irb our, our reaction was oh well we haven't seen this before ever because usually um in, in in the study was i think in the field of education usually um it's it's different identity groups that are more minority groups that would be focused on so we we were working with the student and their committee and just saying well if you can make the case for why this group is a particular concern and the student brought up some concerns about um higher levels of aggression and um you know a- acting out a- after uh situations that are possibly more likely to impact white males. And so we just said, yeah, just make that rationale really clear because anyone you encounter as you're encountering as you're conducting this study, so if you're out in the community trying to recruit children and getting their parents on board with the study in the schools and you're going to have to explain why you're focusing the study on white males because it you can't just go out there and say that without some sort of context. And um, so anyway, that situation's not resolved yet, but those are the types of steps that a researcher would need to take if they want to focus on a particular identity group.
0: Do you feel that, and we talked about this in terms of race, but let's say within a particular racial group, so someone wants to look at Hispanics, maybe Hispanic females, do you feel like they also have a responsibility to look at, like, education level, even if that isn't a factor in their study? I mean, to make sure that they're getting high school age, you know, high school educated people as well as college. How much work should they do in recruitment?
2: I guess that's up to the what, what the research questions are asking. Um I, you know, because I, I wonder, again, it's you know, one, of, one of the great questions, like how, what are the co right? If we, if we think about socioeconomic status, for example, what, what, what's, what makes that up? Um, and if a researcher is disinterested or if it doesn't really fit to think about income level and education level and geography, um, urban-rural status, all of that, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's a good question um it it i think it really depends on you know how a how much demographic information the researchers is capturing um because there are lots and lots and lots of studies that don't capture that at all that that don't have or include that kind of demographic feature um so when when is that useful and why is that useful how is it useful to the research and how does that fit a pattern um, in in existing literature uh, that would bolster findings than for the new research that's being undertaken. Yeah, I, I would say, I would totally agree. It
1: depends on the study and the research question. And I could imagine situations in which there are confounds possibly present and you won't know unless you look at you know education, income, maybe even family size. Like there are some of these variables that aren't always, it may not have to have an obvious tie to the study's main topic, but in order to understand, like we are saying before, in order to understand whose voices are represented in the data set, it's it's important to see, um, for example, if you happen to have, do some recruitment, and you know, a lot of, let's take psychology research, for example, A lot of the body of our knowledge of psychology is based on research that was conducted on colleges, college campuses in the, over the past, you know, five decades, six decades. And so we, it resulted in the entire body of psychological literature being biased toward understanding how youngish people in, in a college setting and how their psychological, um, mechanisms work and and their experiences and um it probably wasn't until we started having more identity and um contextually based discussions about um how lack of access to be participants in research and how that is impacting our body of knowledge and i see i perceive that that's been happening more over the past 20 to 30 years And prior to that, it was just sort of a given, at least in my field in psychology, it was a bit more of a given that, well, if you're gonna recruit participants for kind of what I would call basic psychology studies, so psychology studies that are about basic functioning, like cognitive functioning, I'm not really talking about disorders, like if you just wanna understand how do people problem solve? How do people focus on tasks while there's distractions around? Those studies by and large were conducted on college campuses by uh, using students in psychology classes as volunteers. So um, it will take time, I, I think, for the, the field to to find out whether or not that created a, a problem or a, a biased um, set of theories and findings about basic psychological function. Um, and so I think, you know, to go back to your original example, the, I think that if you, let's say you were making some assumptions, it, or let's say you, you were doing a study and you were pulling data, let's say you're pulling existing data from county records or something, and your population of interest is Hispanic females, and you wanted to be able to run some analyses, and you think, okay, great, I've got their ethnic information here because it's part of the county records, I've got you know the outcome variable of interest, and you might think I'm, you know, I'm going to compare the Hispanic females to the other groups more like a, to the baseline group. I think if you ran that analysis and did not take education into consideration as a covariate, then you run the risk of thinking that your independent variable is their gender and their um, uh, their ethnicity when actually. The, indip- the real meaningful independent variable might have been education all along, and you just happen to not uh, focus on it. So um, I would think also that having a knowing the literature well would help um, a researcher make those decisions about. Well, I can't possibly include every demographic descript- dis- uh, descriptor. I think that um, you know, within public health, for example, it is um, pretty common to look at um, income level, education level, sometimes family size, um, and um, neighborhood, like which zip code they're in, and so these things, you know, you've learned by reading many research articles and seeing what other researchers have done. Not to say that in the next however many decades we might come up with other variables of interest that we just realized were neglected for for a long time. And so, I yeah, I I think that uh, it I would be nervous, honestly, about uh, a, a method. I'm sorry, a result section that did not address any of the um, descriptives of their sample. And yet, I think one of the challenges that we sometimes get into is, um, like take income, for example, sometimes people don't want to share their income. For whatever reason, they might be afraid the tax people find out, or they might just feels very personal. I don't think you need to know that. And um, there are some other questions. Sometimes gender or ethnicity is a sensitive question. and People will either just leave it blank. And, you know, more recently, I think a lot of researchers have a box for prefer not to answer to distinguish those people who really want to not disclose versus people who just skip the item for whatever reason. And those dynamics, I think have to be respected and it, i it, what i counsel my own students is that if there are variables that you think would be helpful to know in some cases you might even have a brief explanatory sentence on the demographic questionnaire on the demographic part of your uh, interviewer questionnaire just to say you know i don't want to engage in any stereotypes or promote stereotypes but it would be really helpful to know a little bit about about your personal background and and you could even say because i want to ensure that i include people from different backgrounds and um more and more when you do online research the researcher sometimes doesn't know who they're interacting with and they it may be a complete mystery you might have someone on the other side of your survey who's in another country and has a very very different lifestyle (laughs) Um, But they're online and they may have found your survey online. And so that's when
0: asking some demographic questions is is pretty important. Absolutely. Thank you. We are about out of time. Thank you guys for a really fascinating discussion. I think we could probably go on for a great deal more time. Thank you so much for participating today. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for joining us today for Research Talk. Our music is by Audionautics.com and I'm Dr. Lee Stoutlander. Today's podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services.